This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch-Larson. Now, Sarah, I feel like it might be a little bit awkward to say this, but I'm just going to call it out, get it out in the open. I feel like there's some some hostility in the recording studio right now. Am I off base about that? Some kind of tension, maybe, that you can like cut with a knife or something in the air. Yeah, just it, it seems like there's something that there, there's some tension here, and I just I'm, I'm not sure I can put my finger on it, but there's something there. We should probably do some breathing exercises, maybe like clear out some space, turn the lights down, just sit and contemplate for a little bit. That'd probably be a good first step to avoid any violent outbursts. There are some pretty violent outbursts on this week's episode. We're going to be talking about the new film from David Leach starring Brad Pitt, Bullet Train. And then we are going to be going to another violent outburst in another time and in another place. We'll be visiting a bank hostage situation for our watch list pick, Sydney Lumet's Dog Day Afternoon. I feel like maybe now would be a good time for me to just drag a couch over and hear me. We can like lie down, talk about our, you know, our dreams or something. I'll pull out like a, a sandbox or something. We can do a little rock garden. Maybe Get in that'll touch help. with our inner ch- children. Maybe I don't know. We we'll, we'll figure it out. That's all coming up on episode 344 of Seeing and Believing. Deer Creek International Business Solutions. How can I help you? I am ready. Well, that's great, Ladybug. Ladybug. A new operational name. Oh, I see what you're doing. Ladybug's supposed to be lucky. Ha. You don't have bad luck. Really? My bad luck is biblical. I'm not even trying to kill people and someone dies. Remember the suicidal bellboy? You drove him to the hospital. Hang in there, buddy! And he didn't die. Okay, the wedding. Tequila? Johannesburg. Time for some change. Do you want it simple for your first job back? It doesn't get simpler. Yes, we're here on episode 344 of Seeing and Believing. And Sarah, I'm optimistic that we can talk out whatever vi- you know weird, bad vibes are, are in the air right now. Oh, I don't know. It may be a little bit of a stretch. There, there may have to be some sort of like, I don't know, trust fall exercises or something. Well, this is a safe safe space. That's so fair. Yeah. We, we've got you covered there. We are going to be talking about two very unsafe spaces on the podcast this week. In the Watchlist segment, we're, of course, going to spend some time in a very dangerous situation in a bank with Sidney Lumet's 1975 Dog Day Afternoon. But for now, we're going to turn our attention to a very dangerous train in Japan with the brand new action comedy Bullet Train out this weekend. In Bullet Train, Brad Pitt stars as Ladybug, an unlucky assassin determined to do his job peacefully after one too many gigs have gone off the rails. Fate, however, may have other plans as Ladybug's latest mission puts him on a collision course with lethal adversaries from around the globe. 
all with connected yet conflicting objectives on the world's fastest train. So, Sarah, this film was directed by David Leach. Mm -hmm. He's known for his comedy stylings in Deadpool 2, Mm -hmm. as well as his action chops from his career as a stuntman and as the uncredited co-director of the first John Wick movie. Um, So I'm curious, you know, with those two poles uh, at work in this newest film from him, how well do you think Bullet Train succeeds at blending those two skill sets of the director? Oh, man, I, I had high hopes for this one. And it really didn't work for me. And I think where I'm landing is that I'm just not into David Leach as a director, potentially. Um, He also directed Atomic Blonde, which was another movie that I had high hopes for based purely on the John Wick and action pedigree. And tonally, I don't think you can get any further from Bullet Train than you can with Atomic Blonde. Like, one is very serious and kind of self-important. And this one, Bullet Train is just, it's deeply silly and it's deeply juvenile and it doesn't really mix the seriousness of the action with the juvenile nature of the humor in a way that feels particularly good and i will go so far as to say i like deadpool 2 better yikes yeah and judging by the look on your face i'm assuming that that's that's not a very good uh i don't know bar to to be comparing it to (laughs) i mean yeah i guess the gloves are off at this point yeah i hate deadpool 2 i think it's it's uh, bad movie on a lot of reason for a lot of reasons. I think it's cardinal sin is that it's just not very funny. Mm-hmm. Deadpool 2's humor is of the variety where Deadpool says a naughty word and then we all snigger like we're grade seven schoolboys and that's about it. And uh, this film kind of takes that same tack, to be honest. It's it adds it has the same ultra violence as Deadpool 2. It has the same kind of reliance on just sort of shocking the audience with extreme profanity and extreme content just for their own sake there's no wit behind it it's just sort of it's there because it's kind of funny when you you know say do do or say something extreme and and kind of make the ain't i a stinker face (laughs) and i feel like this this movie is two hours of the ain't i a stinker face Mm -hmm. and precious little else to compensate for that there's i mean it has style in the sense that if you've seen a Guy Ritchie movie or a Quentin Tarantino movie, you kind of you know it's bag of tricks, and so you recognize that this is style. You know, it just in the purely neutral sense, like it's not just it's it's not devoid of style. The problem is its style is completely derivative, and again, that just kind of leaves you, or at least it left me sitting in the theater wondering, oh, so what? what compensation am I getting for my two hours? And I felt like the answer to that question was not much. I think that a point about style is a really good one because that really gets to the heart of my beef with this movie is that it really feels like David Leach watched a lot of anime and thought that looks really cool. And I'm going to take a lot of the stuff that I saw in anime and I'm going to try to make it live action in a way that kind of, I don't know. I don't know if he thinks that he's necessarily like, elevating the source material by making it live action as opposed to animated. Like, I know that there can be a little bit of a disconnect between thinking that animated fare is for children and live action is for grown-ups, and therefore we are going to say a lot of filthy words and we are going to show a lot of filthy things in the process and we're going to, like, make our movie more adult by that nature. And I don't think that that's necessarily the case. I also just think that this... <sighs> 
I'm so mad, like I can't even formulate like, <laughs> well, a I'm full glad sentence. That all the, the hostility in the air wasn't directed at me, but towards this movie. <laughs> yes, it is all towards this movie, and I don't know that any sort of mediation work with this movie is going to come out particularly well. I just every single time there was a slow motion shot, and there are many in this movie. I kept thinking about how much better it would be if I were watching Samurai Champloo or Cowboy Bebop instead, purely because both of those TV shows, both anime, um, both made by the same um, production company, um, both of those understand that you can't just have the style, you have to have a substance that goes along with it. And both of those shows are mashups as well, kind of like this movie is, because Cowboy Bebop is bebop and blues music mashed up with science fiction, and Samurai Champloo is hip-hop and dance music mashed up with a samurai story. But both of those actually have a point and a worldview and something that they're trying to say, not necessarily as a message, but just this is how this show feels about the world at large. And I think the way that Bullet Train feels about the world at large is just that I'm going to be provocative now so that I can make that anti-stinker face at you. <laughs> and it just infuriates me that its its entire motivation is just that shallow and there's nothing else beneath the surface. Yeah. So um, a couple of weeks ago, we... We talked about for the watchlist segment, uh, we talked about Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that was brought up in that discussion, it was it was my pick. Um, and I was talking about how on the rewatch, I found that a lot of the stuff that I would really thought was great on my initial watch felt a little bit flatter for me a second time around. Like the, the edginess, the kind of the attitude towards uh, some of the female characters, like some of it uh, at the time came across as provocative, but... I felt like it pulled it off watching it again. I felt like, you know, it didn't pull it off as well as I, as it had in my memory. Mm -hmm. um, but one thing I will give Shane Black's film is that for all of that, you know, that faux edginess and arguably childish kind of sense of humor, mm -hmm. it also does have genuine, sincere emotions in it. Yes. Um, now, whether that's down to, to Black or down to his great cast, I mean, that's up in the air, but it's in it's in there. In this film, I don't see any of that kind of, for lack of a better term, heart. There are feints, I guess, that the movie makes towards that, uh, specifically with a duo uh, called in this film Tangerine and Lemon. Mm -hmm. They're, uh, they're you know, assassins, they're extremely, you know, violent, and they, they've kind of got the the same sort of thing that you would expect from an action comedy with assassins. Like, they've all, they've got their little peccadilloes. One of them is really obsessed with his appearance. One of them is really obsessed with Thomas the Tank, tank Engine, and we all laugh, ha, ha, ha. But the their relationship is also the the only relationship in the film that really has a genuine emotional core to it hmm. at least on the page and there are scenes where it seems like leech is kind of interested in drawing that out and making the audience feel something when these characters are in peril or uh suffer some sort of setback but it's constantly undercut with this with this sort of uh, where an, an emotional moment is undercut with a joke or with Brad Pitt sort of making an ooh face when one of them 
gets messily dispatched yeah. or, or so he thinks like that's and that's kind of why the film as it goes on becomes more and more alienating is because it doesn't seem like it's interested in giving you anything even remotely approaching real it just kind of wants to be edgy and after a while that just wears thin if there's nothing underneath it that you can at least kind of feel something about after you're you're done kind of you know, giggling behind your hands at whatever outrageous thing just happened on screen. It's funny that you mentioned Tangerine and Lemon's relationship being kind of the emotional core of this movie, because I don't think that was necessarily the intent of the movie. It kicks off with a man in a hospital with his child in a hospital bed in front of him. (laughs) And again, like, I didn't care about that particular relationship either. And definitely not because the movie didn't want me to care about it. It's or it's just that it was it was so shoddily put together that you have the stakes of there is a child in a hospital bed and this child is in imminent danger and you get reminded about it maybe like twice throughout the entire two-hour runtime and you still don't care about those emotional stakes at all because the movie doesn't fundamentally care about either any of those emotional stakes either there are families like there are a lot of parent-child relationships in this movie and not a single one of them rang true because i had to be i I had to keep being reminded by the movie that those even existed in the first place. It, it, it's funny that you brought the the, the father son relationship at the beginning of the movie because that had honestly, while I was talking, it had slipped my mind because you're right; it doesn't register. Mm-hmm. It's there purely as a pretext to kick the plot into motion, and that overall kind of feels like the movie in a nutshell it's all pretexts to get us to the next action scene to explain why a particular character wants the macguffin uh but it's not really it's not treated with any sort of seriousness it's purely there as part of the machinery of of the plot and it's it so i i guess that just kind of leaves it up to the actors to make as much of an impression as they can with the material they can Mm -hmm. Aaron Taylor Johnson and uh, Brian Tyree Henry as this assassin duo do a pretty good job with the material they're given. So maybe that's why it's stuck with me, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's all on them just kind of doing their best with, with what they got, not the actual stuff that they got being any good. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I don't know. Maybe it's just because the movie doesn't know who to focus on or who to give a lot of its time to. And so it's going to try to spread it out across this entire ensemble because it's not just Brad Pitt. It's not just Aaron Taylor Johnson and Brian Tyree Henry. We have like five or six other assassins running around on this train. And every single one of them is given maybe two minutes, maybe five minutes. A few of them get a little bit of additional runtime, but... Zazie Beetz is in this movie for maybe five minutes, and we don't really hear very much from her. There's a character played by Bad Bunny who shows up and then just sort of is like, doesn't even matter to the rest of the movie at all. Like the moment he shows up, he's just sort of dismissed and, and shoved off to the side. I don't feel bad about spoiling any of that because I don't think the movie feels bad about it either. The movie does not care about any of its side characters, let alone its main characters. It doesn't care to give you anything beyond just like a plot sketch of you should care about this man because he is sad because his wife was murdered by somebody else. And that is the laziest sort of characterization. And that's literally the entirety of all of the characterization in this movie. It is, it is just so surface level 
that it doesn't care about making you care about anything that's going on on the screen. It's interesting, too, because this is on the page again at least mm-hmm. um this is a movie that's that's interested in in fate so brad pitt's uh ladybug uh you know he's constantly bemoaning his his bad luck he's in therapy uh for you know just feeling like life has no meaning and he's just trying to find a way to connect with the people around him and a uh, late film speech kind of talks about how uh, maybe he's fated to be unlucky because in some cosmic sense that allows the world around him to keep spinning and for other people to be happy. And it, a more interesting movie, I guess, might have taken that idea of fate, which is it comes up often enough that it's not an accident. It's clearly intentionally <laughs> inserted in the film, but Leech doesn't have any any idea at all of how to draw it out in an interesting way. It's just sort of mentioned in between action sequences. Mm-hmm. But a more interesting movie would have taken that talk of fate and found a way to maybe use the sense of this is all just a pretext for plot machinery mm-hmm. to to its advantage and sort of evoking that sense of fate's gears slowly turning and catching all these characters up in it in the process. It doesn't do that, but I guess it could have and... I don't know, brownie points for half trying. The movie's literally on rails. The movie literally takes place on a train that is on rails. You could have, <laughs> it could have been more thoroughly incorporated into the script, I think. I don't know. I just, I keep thinking about Brad Pitt as Ladybug, as an assassin who's lost his mojo and kept thinking that I really just wanted to just be watching Gross Point Blank instead. Mm. Because it mixes that action and that comedy in a way that feels much better and is better at writing its female characters, which is something that I'm extremely angry about, probably even angrier than anything else we've brought up so far. I mean, I'm going to level with you here and say that I'm kind of enjoying watching you just fume, because <laughs> I don't feel like I have actually seen you fume over a movie uh, at, you know, during your entire stint as, as a co-host. So oh, yeah. I, I kind of want to keep you know, wind you up and keep you going here. So so ab- about the female characters, and this kind of gets back at that idea of we're just going to take the wife of a man and we're going to fridge her and that's going to be his backstory, but we don't give a rip about that woman at all, except for the fact that she was married to this guy, I guess. There are two female assassins on this train. One of them shows up for about five minutes and makes quite an impression, but also only gets to appear for about five minutes and then promptly gets sidelined, which is really unfortunate. The other one shows up and proclaims that she is the main character of the story. And then the film continues to treat her as a side character in her own story in a way that didn't feel like it was an intentional comment on someone saying, I'm the main character of my story and of my life. It just felt like the movie also didn't know what to do with this character. And it felt like the movie was trying to pay lip service to some sort of girl power assassin, like... I don't know. It it just it felt like the movie thought that if you put in a single line about this character saying I am taking control of my life, that that is enough to make her a well-rounded character. And it really isn't. I mean, none of the characters in this movie are well-rounded, but she felt like the least well-rounded of anybody who got the amount of screen time that she did, if that makes sense. That does make sense. And I'm going to evoke uh, Pulp Fiction here, because obviously this movie wants very badly to capture kind of that that cool that Pulp Fiction had when it first came out. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that one kind of the, the big difference 
in a movie like Pulp Fiction and a movie like this one, and I, I wouldn't count myself as a super fan of Pulp Fiction, but I do think it's put together very, very well. Mm -hmm. And even though it, too, arguably has some very puerile elements oh, in yeah. it, um, the way that Tarantino cuts it together allows the disparate parts to comment on each other in a way that feels like it's more than the sum of its parts. Mm -hmm. um, so the the fact that John Travolta's um, hitman in in that film, we we kind of start off uh, kind of on him, and then as we see other storylines, we get uh, to to glimpse his ultimate fate. But it's not in the part of the story where he is the focus of the story. And in that way, it feels like Tarantino is very intentionally commenting on Travolta's character and also on the sort of world that he inhabits. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting, uh, even, even though like on the page you're looking at it and it might seem like this is just empty style and watching uh bad boys misbehave for <laughs> for kicks there is something behind it just in in the cinematic construction and the way that tarantino uses his camera to emphasize who is the the important character in any given scene mm -hmm. david leach doesn't really seem to exhibit any sort of interest in uh doing anything like that so and, and that i think might lead to that effect that you're mentioning about this this uh female assassin where it's it could be potentially interesting to have arguably the one of the most villainous characters in the entire film kind of argue that she's the real protagonist of the entire film mm -hmm. but because leach doesn't really do anything either in the editing or in the way he uses the camera to sort of play with that idea it kind of just feels like <laughs> she it, she pops up every time like in whack-a-mole and, and <laughs> you know kind of steals a spotlight and then runs away and we, we forget about her and it's just it's not a satisfying way to build the movie and it also leads to some very strange structural issues where towards the end of the film it feels like it keeps going and going and going yes because i i don't know why because leech feels like the more complex the more complicated it is the more complex it is mm. and i don't think those two things are anywhere near the same. I, I think you're hitting the nail on the head here. And I think part of it is that comparison to Tarantino, because Tarantino actually knows how to use subtext and to frame and give us information with the camera without having to explicitly tell it to us in dialogue. And I don't think David Leach is capable of doing that. And in fact, I, I'm very certain that he isn't able to do that because every time somebody says something that is a callback to something else that has previously happened on the screen, we either get an audio cue, like whenever um, Bad Bunny's character, he's an assassin named the wolf, whenever somebody talks about him, you straight up get a wolf howl in the background and then like a little bit of a or like, an actual shot of him howling like a wolf yeah and and the movie treats every single callback and every single detail with that same level of just thudding inability to be subtle at all and that kind of stretches on towards the both the treatment of the female characters but also to the plot because i think that leech or the writer, Zach Olkowitz, isn't willing to trust the audience with being able to understand information that they're getting just on the screen necessarily. So it has to be thrown in there. Maybe it's the editing. Maybe it's the direction. I don't know what's going on here, but there is this inability to trust the audience to be able to understand the complexity of the plot. 
that really frustrated me and made me feel like I was also being talked down to. So it's not just the characterization. It's not just the way the plot is put together, although I think that there are some very significant flaws with that as well. I also think that there is an inability to make anything subtext. We got to make it all text. So it's all going to be on the same level of purility or the same level of being unable to like just relegate a detail to the background and trust that the audience is going to catch it. Um, I was talking about this movie with my husband on the way home from the screening last night. And um, he mentioned that it felt like a movie that was designed to keep catching your attention so that you'll look up from your phone to pay attention to it. And it was giving the information in kind of that way so that if you did happen to look down at your phone, maybe you'll catch something else when you look back up from there. And that just feels like it's it's not willing to trust the audience with a story in a way that just it, it, feel, it felt gross. It felt infantilizing. It felt like I was being pandered to in a really like disgusting way. <laughs> you, you mentioned that it, it- when well, while you're talking just now, the image of the movie kind of dangling a set of keys in front of the audience <laughs> sprang to mind, and for me that I got that impression uh, first with the number of cameos. I don't know. I don't know if they're technically cameos. They feel like cameos. This mm-hmm. film has a pretty good cast. I mean, yeah. In addition to uh, the central assassins, we've got actors like Channing Tatum. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, there, there's a, a third act reveal of, a, of another actor whom I love. I'm a huge fan of this guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was so excited to see him uh, pop up. Uh, Sandra Bullock's voice is in this film. Like, mm-hmm. it is stacked to the gills with really good actors. But they all feel wasted. Like, uh, Channing Tatum is on screen for maybe... A couple of minutes and it feels like he's there just to kind of be a gay joke and then to be forgotten about Mm -hmm. and this is Channing Tatum he's very funny why why would you put him in the movie and then not let him do anything and I feel like that's kind of just another frustrating thing about this film is it feels like it's assembled so much raw material that could be shaped into a good movie but instead it was just sort of microwaved for a couple of minutes and then shoved onto the screen (laughs) that's such a great metaphor for it and the the sad thing is i was very excited to see channing tatum pop up on the screen too and i agree with you like they just completely wasted him he's an incredible screen presence and he deserves so much better and frankly so do so many more of the main cast in this movie I kind of want to talk about the setting, though, because we haven't talked about the setting at all. And I also have opinions about this, mostly negative. Um, So Bullet Train is placed on a bullet train going through modern day Japan from Tokyo to Kyoto. And I think this gets back at the juvenile nature of the script and the editing and the direction. But so much of the setting is presented in a way that just has Brad Pitt commenting on like, wow, aren't Japanese people weird? And in, it felt really gross in a way that just the jokes were lazy. They're the kind of jokes that you can like anybody and everybody has made for time immemorial. And it's not really necessarily respectful to the actual place. It doesn't even really feel like it understands the setting in a way. Um, I don't know, like the laziest possible joke you can make about Japan is that they have fancy toilets. And this is a movie that returns to that as a recurring gag. And that in and of itself, like, even if the rest of the movie had been top tier, great action, great script, great characters, 
that still would have stuck in my craw. I mean, it's another bum note for sure. And it feels like it, it, it feels like the sort of broadness that you do sometimes get in some anime where hmm. uh, I, I think it's Cowboy Bebop where, you know, there's there's one kind of one off villain character in, in an episode who's, you know, a a very tall black man with just a giant afro. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like yeah. that, that's the sort of thing that it's it's very broad and stereotypical, but you can kind of it, in a certain milieu it can be if not excused at least understood as it's not trying to be a representative sample of a particular group yeah i mean i'm not going to excuse that particular character in cowboy bebop either but this particular like i mean cars 2 made that freaking joke (laughs) right uh i guess there's yeah there's there's a broadness i guess that you can Excuse up to a point with uh, an argument that something is is very stylized, I guess. Mm -hmm. I don't think that Mm -hmm. that works in this film, though, because it does feel like it's the only Japanese like there's the the um, the father mm-hmm. he's who is Japanese and then a grandfather character also enters the film at, at one point but even they who are the only Japanese people with Engl- you know speaking roles in the film mm-hmm. are kind of relegated to plot devices like like the other characters with the heaping helping of the the grandfather kind of sitting down and playing sort of the the very the very wise sage it's it's a very orientalist kind of way of looking at it Mm -hmm. and you know that's just in in a better movie you could sort of like oh that's not great but okay maybe but in a movie like this it just really doesn't all of it at all. reeks of laziness, honestly, and I'm exhausted by it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll we'll leave it there, uh, listeners. That is our review of Bullet Train. Not a great film in in our estimation, but if you've had the chance to see it this weekend, maybe you have a different take as well. You can always let us know your thoughts on it. You can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. You can also tweet us at cbelievepod. We're going to turn our attention to greener pastures, <laughs> hopefully at least, with our review of Dog Day Afternoon coming up in the watch list segment here in a few minutes. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Well, that was a that was a thing. That was a journey. Um uh sarah how are you feeling do, do you need a drink of water you want to like yeah, take take a take a few i feel like we've been through battle together against this stupid movie <laughs> <laughs> I, I i don't know if if battle is the metaphor it feels more like uh work in the bag like you you know this this movie was a punchy bag and mm, it just mm-hmm. maybe feels good to get a little bit of aggression out on it maybe training to be an assassin for future bad movies <laughs> well uh it can't hurt us anymore we 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 have uh dispatched it 
on on this episode. Goodbye. Um, listeners, if you liked what you just heard, uh, there's a there are a few ways that you can let us know your approval. Obviously, you can send us your feedback using the means that we just mentioned. Uh, you can also become a patron. And uh, if you go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast, there are some reward tiers there. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them is the... Uh, $10 a month level where you get a few perks. You get a, a personalized recommendation list. Mm-hmm. Um, you get a shout out, obviously. You also uh, get the chance to dictate one movie a year for us to review. And if you were feeling sadistic, uh, you could re- you could choose a film like Bullet Train for us to talk about on the show. We are honor bound to, to review it, even if we aren't sure that it's going to be the best thing for for our sanity. I'm sharpening my knives already. <laughs> I mean, on the on the bright side, you would get to witness uh, Sarah just go ham on on a bad movie. So mm-hmm. that's an option to open to you as well. If you're uh, more in the playful impish mood, that's something you can do when you pledge at the ten dollar a month level at our Patreon. Uh, so. Thanks for checking out. There are lots of other tiers as well that we haven't even gotten to. So make sure to do your research there. And to all of our faithful patrons who help us keep the lights on over here at Seeing and Believing week in and week out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you. And we look forward to giving you many more episodes. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So Kevin, we're going to go to the watch list segment, which every week one host gets to pick a movie that the other host has not seen. So this week, Kevin picked Dog Day Afternoon, which I hadn't seen yet. Um, And actually, I'm not entirely sure what the reasoning was behind this. Usually I'm the one playing 10-dimensional chess (laughs) with figuring out what the connection is going to be between our new release and our watch list segment. Well, I I think I I mentioned this on the episode before we we took our our one-week vacation, uh, where I, I was really wanting to do Snowpiercer to Mm -hmm. pair with Bullet Train just because it seemed too perfect. But alas, you had already seen it. So I was racking my brains. I was thinking, okay, well, what else works? And then I hit on it. Single location movies um, are can be a lot of fun just because of the way they let you dwell in a space and get to know it really well and get to know the characters within it really well, Mm -hmm. at least in theory. I think that works. That's very true of Dog Day Afternoon, less so with Bullet Train, but that was the thinking behind it. And I mean, I'm definitely all on board with that. Maybe we'll get you playing some more 10-dimensional chess for later watch list picks as well. All right. Um, But to go to Dog Day Afternoon, just a quick plot synopsis. Um, This movie was actually based on a Life magazine article called The Boys in the Bank, um, about a bank robbery gone wrong in Brooklyn. Sonny, played by Al Pacino, and Sal, played by John Cazale, planned to simply grab the money and go, but the two are inexperienced and they fail almost immediately. The robbery turns into a hostage situation, which then turns into a media circus, exacerbated by Sonny and Sal's motivations for carrying out the robbery in the first place and also by the many people that they come into contact with in the course of the hostage negotiation. So 
Kevin, we do meet a lot of characters in this movie, and we do get to spend a lot of time with these characters in this movie. And I'm curious to know which of the characters in this situation do you sympathize the most with? So... I, I mean, full full disclosure to our listeners, this was a question that you posed to me uh, before we started recording, just to kind of like give me a heads up so I wasn't caught completely flat-footed. And so I've, I've had this entire time to sort of have that question cooking in the back of my mind. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like I'm any closer to an answer now mm-hmm. than I was when you first posed it to me. Because I think, and this is one of the reasons why I think Dog Day Afternoon is such a strong film, is that Lumet is so good at portraying a world in which everybody's just kind of trying to do their best. Yeah. Um, obviously, you know, the uh, Sonny and Sal, uh, you know, Al Pacino and John Cazale uh, in this movie, they're, they're obviously, you know, they're all just flop sweat and desperation, mm-hmm. um, just trying to make the best of this fiasco that they've brought down upon themselves. The bank employees are kind of just doing their best. The, uh, the, the hostage negotiator from the NYPD is just this this guy in a in a bad suit who's just trying to <laughs> trying to talk a very volatile person out of a very dangerous situation. Mm-hmm. Um, Sonny's various uh, acquaintances and family members are in their own way, kind of victims of his, of his rash actions. It's all just, it's, it's a movie full of, of people that are just trying to get by Mm -hmm. and some of them aren't doing all that great of a job at it. And Lumet does a wonderful job of just making you feel for every single one of them. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know. I, I, I had only seen it once before rewatching it for for the segment, and it was even better the second time through. I mm. I would just I I I think it's transfixing to watch all of these characters bounce off of each other. It's transfixing to watch Al Pacino play in this register. Yes. Um. So, oh, I guess that's a really roundabout way of saying I can't choose. Don't make me choose. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious to know if you had a answer of your own in the back of your mind when you asked me that question trick question i couldn't decide either oh yeah there were four or five different characters that i found myself sympathizing with um basically concurrently not even just like alternating allegiance or anything just watching all of these characters kind of trying to fumble through this situation that nobody ever wants to be in in the first place and nobody ever really knows how to get through in the second place and particularly not these characters, because like you said, they are really just trying to do the best they can with what they've got. I loved this movie. I thought it was really, really good, um, particularly because I think Lumet is very smart about just setting the camera in place and letting these characters just sort of bounce off each other and then framing them in a way that tells you additional information about them. Um, I don't know. He's, he's very He's very economical about the way that he's telling his story, but it doesn't feel like he's being necessarily cheap or anything. It's just that he knows the mode and the register that the story needs to be told. And in this case, it's fairly reserved camera work so that those actors and especially Al Pacino can really shine while they're going throughout the rest of their day, which sounds very laid back uh, in comparison to like what's actually going on on the screen here. Well, what struck me this time around is that uh, Dog Day Afternoon, just in terms of structure, is a very strange beast. Like there's, you know, there's 
the tension is high in this film, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very high stakes situation. You simultaneously want Sonny and Sal to to somehow get it, get away with it without hurting anyone, mm-hmm. um, while also wanting the 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 people, the innocent people in the bank to obviously not be hurt or or traumatized any further. But there's not really any sort of um, spikes in the action. Mm-hmm. Like there's there there's I I can just imagine a different version of the story kind of having the negotiation scenes or the dialogue scenes broken up with with um kind of moments where it tries to up the stakes a little bit so you know maybe like the cops try to break in or one of the bank employees gets a gun or somebody suffers a a horrible accident or somebody's life is seriously threatened and i mean those things kind of do occur at various points over the course of this film but Lumet doesn't make a big deal about them. They're just, mm-hmm. they're events that happen, but it's kind of just one unbroken uh, dialogue scene from beginning to end. Like it's the, the main interest of the film isn't in the situation. It's in the characters. Mm-hmm. And I think that distinction is very important. And I think he does do it. You're right. A lot with uh, camera placement, also with the production design of this yes. film. Um, there's a, a very cannily placed, sign inside the bank that i hadn't noticed on my first watch that i noticed this time around um there's a sign uh near the doors that says exit only Hmm. and whenever uh sunny uh or or sal kind of have to exit the building to talk to the police negotiator they have to walk past that sign Hmm. and it's just kind of the silent very subtle reminder to us in the audience that this isn't going to end well for them. Mm. There's only one way out of this situation for them, and it's not a good one for them. And you you root for them, and there are points in this film where it does seem like you know everybody's going to kind of win in some sense, or at least everybody's going to... There, there's not going to be anyone who seriously suffers at the end of it. But there's that sign there it's it's right in the middle of the floor and there's no there's no getting away from the fact that the the forces that have brought sunny to this desperate plan of action aren't going to let him get get away scot-free once he's embarked upon it Mm, that's such a great detail i wish i had noticed the exit only sign kind of feels like i don't know david leach could have gotten a bit of a lesson (laughs) in fate (laughs) <laughs> in Maybe. production design. And I, that's where I'm going to stop taking digs at bullet train because again, it is gone. It is in the past. It can't hurt us now. Um, and Sydney Lumet can indeed hurt us emotionally mm. much better. I think. Um, yeah. I just, I keep thinking about the costume design too, and the way that the costumes shift and change throughout the course of the movie. Um, I actually read Sidney Lumet's Making Movies book at the beginning of the year, and he specifically called out the fact that Al Pacino kind of starts in, like, full dress at the beginning of the movie, and, like, he's basically undressed by the end of it. His coat's off, his shirt's unbuttoned, he's in flop sweat, he's wearing a white shirt, and you can pretty much see through it because he's been sweating so much. And it's just a beautiful supplement to his work as an actor that that gives you a lot of information about his mental state just by looking at him and then it also at the same time it's not taking away anything from that performance it's not one upping that performance it's an additional tool in the box for al pacino's performance as sunny which 
I was expecting to be good. I don't know that I was expecting it to be quite this good, if that makes sense. Like, I love Al Pacino as an actor. I genuinely love when he gets over the top and hammy. And I think that the level of ham and restraint, I think, that he brings to Sonny is kind of a very delicate balancing act. And sometimes it looks like he's just going to teeter up over the edge. And he doesn't. And usually it's at the moments where he's just outside of the bank, he's talking to the hostage negotiator, and the attention of the crowd has caught his eye. And he recognizes that not only is he supposedly the person who's in power in this situation, but he's also an entertainer, and he has a crowd that he has to play towards. And I just, I love that that balancing act and the tension between those two motivations, like you never really lose track of those at all throughout the course of the entire movie. Oh man, while you were talking, three things occurred to me about, you know, points to pursue as to talk about in this conversation. <laughs> I'm just, I don't know which one to, you know, I don't know which one to pursue. They're, they're, they're all so rich. Let's start with Pacino's performance. Mm-hmm. I think he's great, obviously. Um, and watch, watching it, Watching this performance and contrasting it with something like, like Heat, where yes. he's just, he's, in his own words, ferocious, ain't I? You know, like, <laughs> that's, and, and him in this film where he's just, he's got that, he, he's changed his voice to be very reedy and high pitched. Um, he's um, using his, his shorter stature to kind of seem, um, oh, you know, small and overwhelmed. He's got that, that, that hair. But I think, the thing that is the common denominator in all of these performances are his eyes. Mm-hmm. And in this one, those eyes, you know, they're, they're so large, they're so dark, um, they're so wide. Um, it, he uses it to both give, he uses his, his eyes to give something the sense of just extreme vulnerability. Like he's in way over his head, mm-hmm. but also he's, there's, there's an intensity in his gaze. Like he's constantly staring around like, almost bug-eyed, like trying to find the next thing that's going to get him to the next hour of his life without something horrible happening. And it's that combination of vulnerability and, and um, desperate cunning that makes Sonny so Sonny and Pacino so compelling to watch in this film. Like he's not pathetic. He's got pathetic dimensions to his character Mm -hmm. but lumet doesn't condescend to him he doesn't make him an object of pity Mm -hmm. he kind of gives us the the whole person and as portrayed by pacino i mean perfect no notes (laughs) it's it's a great performance it's an incredible performance and i think a lot of the power comes through Lumet knowing how to harness that energy and to present it in ways that make this character understandable, if not necessarily always sympathetic. And also, um, he also presents him in really surprising ways, too. I was struck by the scene towards the end where Sonny is dictating his will Mm. to one of the tellers. And I thought that it was just such a smart way of giving you everything that Sonny is thinking about that he hasn't said out loud yet, and also giving you the way that he's thinking about it and the fact that he really hasn't planned a lot of this through. Like when, when they first enter the bank, Sonny is kind of talking through a list. Like this is all of the steps that I need to do in order to pull off a successful bank heist. And you can tell that he's, he's thought about it, but he hasn't thought about the consequences beyond any of those actions that he's supposed to take. And he hasn't explained any of that to any of his accomplices, which is part of the reason why things go South so quickly. 
And so being given the opportunity to listen to him thinking out loud and telling another person how he thinks without explicitly saying, hey, you person over here, this is what I'm thinking. It's just such a smart storytelling choice that I I don't think I've really run across much before. And I appreciate the way that Al Pacino plays it because it is kind of understated and he's he's being very dramatic, but he's being very dramatic in a way that makes sense for the character because he thinks he's being reasonable at that moment and making out his will and saying, like, this is where I want everything to go. Basically, here are all of my motivations for doing this robbery in the first place. And I don't think I'm going to get out of this. But what if I do? And you can kind of read all of that on his face and in his voice at the same time as well. The screenplay is really impressive. So it was written by Frank Pearson, uh, who, you know, has, is also, I mean, he's written a lot of good movies. He, he wrote Cool Hand Luke, mm-hmm. you know, the, this, and the screenplay here is just so wonderful for how it continually surprises you. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the, the first moment where it really kind of zigs where you expect it to zag is, um, it's early in, in the hostage situation. And, uh, Sonny is trying to, you know, trying to kind of f- figure figure things out and figure out what his next step is. And he he kneels down beside John Cazale's Sal, who at this point has said like three words. He hasn't mm-hmm. said very much at all. And um, Sal is, you know, he's, he's very quiet. He's very withdrawn. He, unlike Sonny, who kind of sheds clothes over the course of the film, Sal remains completely clad in his three-piece suit yes. the entire time. Um, and he's got kind of the way Kazal plays him. He's got kind of like this almost, you, you almost feel like you see his lower lip trembling, like he's about to burst into tears. And so when Sonny kneels down beside him to sort of confer with him and, and let him know, okay, this is my next step. You, you expect him to sort of have this dynamic where he's, he's just going to tell Sal, like, it's okay. You know, uh, we're, we're, we're going to get out of this. And then Sal says, uh, uh, Sonny, like when you said that you might start killing hostages, did you really mean that? And you kind of expect uh, Sonny to say, like, oh, no, 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 I, w- I wasn't saying that. And then Sal, before uh, Sonny can respond, Sal says, because I'm ready to do it. Oh, man. And yeah. just, I, again, the the line delivery, perfect. But also you you begin to realize that Sal's got something going on. And we, may, and, and we never really see exactly into his inner life the way we see into Sonny's, mm-hmm. but we get little hints here and there uh, through through the dialogue that are just so, so wonderful. And Kazal knows exactly how to uh, not pull the spotlight from Sonny, but also he's always just kind of there. He's always kind of lurking, not saying anything, observing, and you don't really know what's going through his head. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. That, to watch. His might be my favorite performance in the entire movie. And a lot of it is the way that he holds himself. And I'm particularly thinking of when the FBI agent finally comes through the door to get a read on the situation, see who all is in the bank. Um, Sal's kind of parked himself behind a corner behind a column. And he's covering the door with his rifle. And the way that he holds it, you can tell this man knows how to handle a rifle. And you can also tell that he is absolutely terrified at the same time. And he's just, like you said, he's just kind of there in the background. Like the movie is very much Al Pacino and and Sonny's story. But I think that John Cazale as Sal lends an additional level of depth because he's kind of modulating the tone in a completely different direction. 
And it's fascinating to see these two characters react to the exact same circumstances and the exact same people in completely different ways. And to be able to understand exactly why each of these characters are going to do that very, very differently. And I just, it's, it, it feels magical and it feels like, I don't know, like kind of the perfect partnership between actor and supporting actor, really, because they're both informing each other's performances and it enriches instead of taking away from it. Like John Cazale could have been a scene stealer in this movie and he's not, he's very generous. He's going to seed the floor whenever he needs to, but the moments where he is given the time to shine, I think are, are just about perfect and a little bit too much of that might've been too much, but it's just right. Like on every mm-hmm. level. Yeah. Let's uh, talk a little bit more about the kind of the, the character surrounding Pacino Sonny, because I think one reason, you know, going back to the question we kicked the segment off with was, you know, who do you feel for the most? And I couldn't choose. And I think that's because um, the cast of characters surrounding Sonny is so rich. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I really want to dig more into that because I think the the vision of Lumet's vision in this film is so thoroughly humane and compassionate mm-hmm. that... I I think it's a really great movie for um for Christians just to sort of like just or for anybody I guess just to watch a sort of an exercise in understanding every everyone <laughs> like even even the cops who are if there's a villain in this film it's it's the cops and the FBI mm-hmm. but even even they are sort of you kind of you, you you get them mm-hmm. like you you understand that this is just a job for them. And you, you understand that when Sonny, you know, uh, has that rallying cry of Attica, Attica, because of the, of the brutality and, and senseless violence that the NYPD inflicted on elsewhere, mm-hmm. uh, that, that the, the guys who are sort of trying to defuse the hostage situation are sort of like, they they just they they hate him for bringing that throwing that back in their face, mm-hmm. but they're also sort of like I'm just trying to do I, I this is just my job, man, mm-hmm. and I I think that that's just an interesting dimension of this film that it accords literally every person on the screen their dignity. Yeah, it does. Um, although I keep coming back to the crowd and how fickle the crowd is, mm-hmm. so the crowd joins in with that Attica Attica chant, and you totally get where they're coming from. But the moment they find out about Sonny's sexuality, they kind of turn on him. Like, they've been treating him as a folk hero up until this point. And then the moment that there is a crack in that armor, they turn on him and they start to exploit it in a way. Like, the crowd specifically. Like, there's there's some pretty ugly cat calls after that. And I think Lumet is very smart about the way that individual people can have the best intentions. But once you get them into a crowd that has started to go, it's really difficult to fuel those intentions in a way that's going to be any good, really. And so, I don't know, it, it, it felt smart about the way that people behave both singly and together. And, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it, it's it's uh, Lumet's doing something interesting here with the distinction between the individual and the group. Mm-hmm. Um and the different ways that, uh, you know, when when dealing one-on-one with somebody, so with the rapport that eventually uh, uh, develops between Sonny and the hostage negotiator, um, that's kind of a sense where it's no longer 
the the systems keeping Sonny down. Like Sonny has a face that he can talk to, and they do all right together, all you know, under considering the circumstances. Um, but then there's there's the way that the situation shifts once the TV cameras come out. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way that uh, certain individuals take it on themselves to crank call the 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 bank. Uh, one one anonymous person calls and tells Sonny he should kill everyone. Mm-hmm. Other uh, anonymous people keep calling in because they want to talk to the women in the bank because they they get something out of like. Uh, talking to women in danger mm-hmm. and the the women kind of like treat it as sort of gross but also kind of fun to sort of like play it lean into that persona that has been put on them by all the media attention mm-hmm. and i think it's just the, in, in a lot of ways this film just feels it hasn't aged today it's so modern in its attitudes towards the media towards society towards sexuality mm-hmm. um possibly the most compassionate progressive treatment of a transgender character of the time period um probably yeah i I was watching again i was really impressed by the the scene between sunny and his his lover played by chris sarandon um who is we find out the the reason why sunny went to rob the bank in the first place in order to obtain money for a sex change operation Mm -hmm. um the scene which they in which Chris Sarandon speaks to the cops or hoping to get him to talk Sonny down. Mm -hmm. And then later when he's on the phone with Sonny, I think are just riveting to watch. Yeah, yeah. It's a very sensitive portrait. And I think... I think Lumet is really smart about not trying to present everybody necessarily in the best light possible. Like, I I think part of the strength of the dynamic between Sonny and Leon is that these two characters also know that they have a relationship that is completely screwed up and they're making each other's lives worse and they don't know how to detangle themselves from that. And I think that that's one of the things that Lumet does to humanize these characters who I think in a lesser movie would have definitely been just treated as the circus sideshow that the media in the movie is treating them as, if that makes sense. Like, or, or, uh, the other side of the coin is being just like a, a you know a very saint you know a saintly couple that is just sort of their too their love is too pure for this for this world mm-hmm. which is its own flattening effect. Yeah, they're both still people trying to do the best with what they've got, and what they've got isn't particularly good, and their options out of it aren't great either. And I found myself rooting for both of them, and I found myself rooting for all of the other characters who both of them had hurt throughout the process of the movie as well. It's just, it, it felt very smart and it felt very sensitive in a way that I wasn't really fully expecting necessarily. Um, I don't know. I, I think Lumet probably made one of the best movies about social media in 1975 with this, <laughs> just based on the way yeah. that the crowd reacts to everybody else and the way that all of these characters communicate with each other and this showboating that happens once you realize like the public's eye is on you and then the realization that that's not actually a good thing and not the kind of scrutiny that you necessarily want yeah it's it's interesting that the film begins with establishing shots of 1970s new york uh you know the the picturesque and the the not so picturesque like there's (laughs) there's pictures of you know trash crowding the streets and there's also pictures of you know like well-known landmarks as well and lumet kind of he 
spends his time with those shots before we even see the bank, before we even see the stars of the film, mm-hmm. um, because he's not interested in just sort of telling this particular story and just using it for entertainment. He's, I think he, he's trying to sketch a portrait of of a society <laughs> and i you know when i say that it feels like you know we live in a society kind of pontificating but i think lumet because he he grounds it in this individual story but he also allows the the wider social context to sort of crowd in around the the edges and margins and inform and impact that individual story i think that's what makes this film you know so in absorbing to watch on an you know, on a dramatic level mm-hmm. while also feeling like a very important artistic artifact. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think he's good at um, using those additional pieces, not just for color and not just for set dressing. Although like, like we've already established the production design in this movie is very helpful towards telling that story. But I think he also uses all of those to just kind of raise that tension just a little bit, not over the top, not melodramatic, just, just enough so that you can understand all of the different tensions that all of these characters are operating under. Um, yeah, it's it's a really good, delicate balance that he's walking here. Well, I'm really glad that you that you liked it. Um, I was, I like I said, I liked it even more the second time, so I was really glad to have the excuse to revisit it. So better experience than Kiss Kiss Bang Bang then? Yeah, I, I was I was eager to redeem myself after being a little <laughs> bit disappointed and let down by my choice then. So Success. Uh, thank you, Sydney Lumet, for making Dog Day Afternoon. Uh, next week's Watchlist segment, uh, we're, I'm excited about it. It's obviously one I've not seen. Do you want to share what it is? Yeah, we are going to be staying in the 1970s. We're even going to be staying in 1975, but we're going to go all the way across the world. And we're going to watch Peter Weir's Picnic at Hanging Rock, um, which is an incredible summer movie for one. And also just, I don't know, a a really good mood piece and a very tense piece in a way that is interesting conversation, I think, with Dog Day Afternoon. I'm looking forward to that. You know, we and since we are in the dog days of summer, like I like that we're kind of keeping that theme going over multiple weeks. Uh, So, yeah. Listeners, if you want to watch along with us, that is Picnic at Hanging Rock. It should be a good discussion for sure. But that'll do it for this week's discussion. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah welsh Larson, And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.